Welcome into a new Buff Stampede Radio. My name is Adam Ostertiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com, and I am joined on the line by a special guest, longtime CU beat writer BG Brooks. BG, thanks for taking some time out of retirement life to reminisce about the Buffs. Yeah, uh, thanks for the invitation, and uh, my schedule permits this as well as a lot of other things. So uh, I'm glad, glad to be able to join you. For most of our listeners, you don't need much of an introduction. You've covered the Buffs for a long time, but for those that are maybe newer CU fans, BG uh, covered the Buffs from 1987 until his retirement, which I believe was in 2017. Is that correct? Correct. Right. Uh, yeah. The uh, When the Rocky Mountain News closed in 2009, uh, Mike Bone, the, then the athletic director at CU, approached me about uh, filling a special position that they were creating in the sports information department. It was uh, really kind of a continuation of what I'd been doing as a beat writer for the Rocky Mountain News. And Mike and Dave Platty wanted me to cover CU athletics in, in much the same way that I'd done for the newspaper. Now there were, you know, there were restrictions, of course, uh, I was writing for the university and for the athletic department rather than for the newspaper. But they both told they both told me, uh, you know, uh, cover this as you would for the Rocky Mountain News. And if there is anything objectionable that, uh, you know, that we see in your coverage, we'll, we'll of course, let you know. And uh, I didn't approach it in the same way that I had. <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't approach it in the same way that I had for the newspaper. I mean, I knew full well going in who my paycheck was coming from, and that was CU, not the Rocky Mountain News. So um, I didn't encounter many problems. There were, you know, there were a couple of issues that came up about what to write and so forth. Uh, and I had access, far more access as a, a CU employee than I did as a Rocky Mountain News employee to what was going on within the athletic department. Yeah, and that's one of the, the many reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, because you've covered it from both sides of things. Was there, yeah. a, was there a side of it that you enjoyed more? Well, you know, to be honest, <clears throat> excuse me, to be honest, I think... I think covering it for the newspaper, because I've done it for so many years, um, was a little less restrictive than it was covering it from the inside, so to speak. Um, the, you know, I, I really wasn't chasing stories when I was working for the university. Uh, I had the information right there, you know, and there were, they didn't keep many secrets from me. But on the other side of the equation there, working for the Rocky Mountain News, uh, the information that I got was from people I knew within the department or outside the department or whatever. And there was not a lot of information. It was just uh, you know, given to me because I was an employee. So the, the working conditions in that regard were much different. Um, 
you know, I, I had to develop sources among the regents, among uh, athletic department personnel, staffers, players, whoever, that, uh, you know, that really weren't necessary in working for CU. So that was, uh, that was part of the newspaper business that I really enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed breaking stories, as every newspaper guy would. Um, I enjoyed uh, the competition of competing against the Denver Post, the Boulder Daily Camera, the Colorado Springs papers, et cetera. And you just, you know, you didn't have that competition uh, when I was working for the university. I mean, the, the competition I had was trying to write a better game story or write a better feature or, you know, just the, the sheer writing aspect of it and, and competing in that way. So, you know, it was, it was a, you know, much similar jobs, but they're again, different in a lot of respects. Are you kind of glad you were in the newspaper industry? Obviously when you work is of things, how things have evolved with, with print and everything, but also from the aspect that Twitter wasn't around back then, it seems like now you can do all this work, break a story, but it's going to be everywhere within minutes on Twitter. I, I feel like when you were covering it for the Rocky Mountain News, if you broke a story, it was a BG Brooks exclusive for a little while at least. Yeah, and, and Twitter has changed the the whole dynamic there. Um, <clears throat> um, I can remember working for the Rocky and telling my editors that I had a story on a, let's say a Tuesday afternoon that I didn't believe anybody else had. And you're pretty sure that come Wednesday morning when the paper was in print and on somebody's doorstep, that would be a story that uh, the Rocky Mountain News had exclusively. But, uh, and, you know, we would even go to the lengths at the newspaper of not putting that story in the first edition, in the, the regional edition, because we didn't want the other news outlets who got our first editions. And of course, uh, you know, TVs would get it also. We didn't want them to have any inkling of what was coming in our final Metro edition. But now, hey, you know, now you've got players breaking stories on Twitter. You've got uh, every other news outlet who has reporters who have Twitter accounts and getting a story first and, you know, and sitting on it, thing of the past, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's that left a long time ago. And, and thankfully, you know, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I wasn't part of the Twitter generation in the newspaper business. Well, BG, I can tell you that it was great having a veteran reporter like you around for, for myself when I was just coming up into the CU beat. Uh, and I want to kind of go back to your past and, and your roots growing up. You were born in Memphis, correct? Correct. What was and childhood? What was your childhood and upbringing like out there? Well, it was, it was very different. Uh, in, in Memphis, I, I grew up in a middle class white neighborhood <clears throat> and uh, a segregated neighborhood. The... Um, 
integration was, you know, I, I was in, I grew up in the um, mid 50s, early 60s, graduated from high school. I'm going to date myself in 64. And um, in a totally segregated high school, 12 years of segregated school, in fact. And uh, it was just a different time, a different climate, a different age. And uh, I mean, I'm not saying that it was a bad upbringing. It was just not that I, I wasn't exposed to a lot of things that um, I think I should have been exposed to growing up and things that I certainly didn't see when I left Memphis and uh, went from Memphis to Columbia, Missouri, and then Columbia, Missouri to Denver. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is somebody's history, whether it's whether it's good or bad. But um, it was just a different upbringing. It was a good upbringing. I had good parents, um, ran with some pretty good guys that I still keep in touch with. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have many regrets about my childhood. Did you grow up wanting to have a career in sports journalism? Was that a dream or a goal that you had? No, it was not. Uh, when I went to school, I went to, then it was Memphis State University and graduated from Memphis State, but uh, I was majoring in secondary education and with, uh, with the goal of teaching um, science. And um, I had a minor in journalism and uh, just so happened that when I was a senior in college, the journalism department in Memphis State <clears throat> had uh, had an opening for an intern at the local newspaper, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, and there weren't there weren't a lot of um, there weren't a lot of journalism majors at the time who whose grades would allow them to get the internship. And I'm not saying that I was a 4.0 student or anything like that, but, you know, I did have a couple of B's and a couple of courses in journalism. And I guess, you know, that's, that speaks poorly of the other uh, journalism majors at the time to not be able to compete with me, which was certainly, uh, you know, not, I didn't raise the bar. I'll tell you that, but uh, I got the internship to the commercial appeal in Memphis and went, uh, my first stop was in sports as an intern. And um, I liked it and they liked what I was doing in sports and they offered me a job um, before I graduated. They offered me a job and I said, well, you know, I'm liking this and I think I'll give it a shot. And uh, I gave it a shot for almost 50 years. Were you kind of placed into sports or was that your request with that internship? No, I was I was placed in sports um, uh, and I was supposed to do the second half of the internship on the news side. And uh, they they needed some extra bodies or an extra body in sports. So they said, would you like to complete the internship in sports? And I said, yeah, that's you know, I don't have any objections to that because I had. I'd grown up around sports. I'd played football in high school and and dabbled in basketball. And, you know, sports had been a pretty big part of my growing up. 
And so, uh, you know, going into sports and writing about sports uh, seemed pretty natural. And uh, and I, I took to it and, you know, I guess it kind of took to me. When did you know that you wanted to further your education in journalism and, and head out to Columbia and attend grad school at Missouri? Well, um, when I was at the Commercial Appeal, I had I worked with a guy who left uh, Memphis and went to Columbia and was the managing editor of a smaller newspaper. Well, both newspapers in Columbia are pretty small, the Columbia Tribune and the Columbia Missourian. The Missourian is the laboratory paper for the uh, School of Journalism at the University of Missouri. But uh, this friend was the managing editor. He took the managing editor's job at the Columbia Tribune, which at the time was the afternoon paper in Columbia. And he approached me about moving to Columbia and writing a column outside of sports, not a not a sports column, but a general news column. And I thought at the time, well, you know, this is a pretty good way to get another look at the newspaper business. And it's something that I wanted to do. And so uh, I accepted the job and, and Patty and I, my wife, moved to Columbia, which was a big step for us because we were both lifelong Memphians and, you know, we had to say goodbye to family, et cetera. But uh, we moved to Columbia and I worked for a year and a half at the Columbia Missourian, um, I'm sorry, the Columbia Daily Tribune, and um, wrote that column and did other work for them and really enjoyed it. Um, and then the University of Missouri approached me about moving over there and teaching a course very low, low, low division journalism course, and uh, being the sports editor, <clears throat> excuse me, being the sports editor of the uh, Missouri and the laboratory newspaper at, at the School of Journalism. So I did that, enrolled in graduate school, <clears throat> and uh, wor <clears throat> worked in, <clears throat> excuse me, worked at the Missourian and went to school, graduate school in Missouri for a couple of semesters and then got the um, offer from the Rocky Mountain News to come to Denver and cover the Broncos. And <clears throat> that was in 1978. So I had a decision to make about either staying in Missouri and finishing grad school or coming to Denver. And uh, we had been to Colorado several times, Patty and I, and had really, really loved Colorado. <clears throat> so we, we told ourselves that, you know, if, if an offer comes to take a job in Colorado, we'll have to seriously consider it. So we seriously considered it. And, in 1978, moved to Denver. You were on the Broncos beat then for about nine or 10 years? Uh, no, um, I was on the Broncos beat for three, year, <clears throat> three years and then was uh, 
the NFL at large writer, which was a really, really good gig. Um, going, you know, going to the biggest NFL games every weekend and um, covering the NFL, you know, as a beat, but certainly not as local beat. And then I took, I became the sports editor at the Rocky Mountain News and did that for, I think, three years and got back into writing in uh, 87 and started covering CU. What lessons did you have to learn the hard way early on in your journalism career? I think maybe, um, well, developing sources is a, is a huge part, and I think it still is a huge part of beat reporting and newspaper work in general. And I think that to develop sources, you have to you have to prove to a source or anyone you're dealing with really that you're trustworthy and that you can, you know, if somebody tells you something off the record, I know a lot of people say there's no such thing as off the record that, you know, once a person tells you something, uh, it's they think that you know, you're going to run with it. But I tried to always, if a person said, well, this is off the record, not for publication or whatever, I tried to honor that. And, uh, you know, there were, there were other ways that uh, if you were resourceful enough, that if someone told you something now, you know, this is off the record or this didn't come from me or, you know, phraseology like that, there were ways that you could contact someone else and still get your information for publication. And, you know, there were times that uh, that didn't always work. And someone would come back to me and say, well, you know, I thought we had this conversation about it being off the record. And I said, well, it was. But once I had the information, I wasn't going to sit on it. And, you know, I went in another direction. And if, you know, I hope this doesn't uh, damage a relationship or whatever. But, that's a lesson that I think you have to learn by experience. Uh, there were, you know, other lessons, too many to count really, that you just learned from being on the job and from dealing with uh, coaches, administrators, players, whoever. You know, that uh, if, you, if you remember those things, I think, you know, you can, you can do your work and still make friends in the process. Was it more challenging to toe that line and get information and protect those relationships and, and do it in a way where you're not burning sources as compared to the writing part? Is the writing part almost easier sometimes than that aspect of the job? Well, the, the writing part, I always figured and always looked at it <clears throat> as the real, the real reward in what I was doing because I loved, I loved to sit down at a typewriter or, you know, later a computer and really uh, try to gather thoughts and, and remember and look at notes and see what I had just seen and try to present that in a way that I thought was number one, factual, and number two, uh, presented in a way that would be readable and entertaining. And, um, 
I, th- I think I managed to do that, or at least I managed to hold a job for you know a number of years. And um, the I think the hard part is doing the legwork, doing the research, uh, uh, nailing down facts, um, meeting deadlines, and you know getting to do that uh, was just and, and then getting to write it in a way that you were you know, somewhat pleased with was just, you know, more than you could ask for if that's what you were interested in. Did you ever have any situations where you wake up in the middle of the night and you think you might've gotten a fact wrong or misspelled something and (laughs) you're, you're, you're kind of panicked until you see the the print product too many times to count. Um, You know, I can, I can remember waking up in the middle of the night and something would would come to me that didn't come to me when I was in the press box six hours earlier. And it would come to me and say, boy, that would have been a great way to uh, explain this. Or that would have been a great phrase to use in that situation. And, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's something that's already gone to press. And, uh, you know, it's going to be sitting on somebody's coffee table in the first form tomorrow. And I can't go to their coffee table and say, hey, that's what I meant to say. That's what I should have said. But, uh, you know, yeah, it happens so many times. But I'll tell you this, the uh, in working for the university and having all of my material appear on the website, you know, I could go back if I really felt the need, go back and edit something that was online. But I tried not to do, unless unless what I was editing was a mistake. Now, if I had something factually wrong in a story on the website, certainly I'd go back and, and correct that. But, uh, you know, just as far as uh, wanting to say something in a different way or not being pleased with whatever, um, you know, I could have probably made a second career out of going back and, uh, you know, doing things over. You started covering the buffs right when Bill McCartney was kind of getting things turned around in Boulder, correct? <clears throat> yeah. Um, started covering the buffs in 87 with, um, I think Mark Hatcher was the quarterback. <clears throat> and, those were, I mean, that was, you know, beginning of the breakthrough era for CU. And from 88 through about the mid-90s, uh, you know, I think it really was the golden age of, of latter-day CU football. Now, you know, you, go, you can go back to the Eddie Crowder era in the 70s and so forth, and there were great, great CU teams then. But I think, uh, you know, the modern – the modern day success that CU had and uh, it's going to be hard pressed to duplicate, I think, was during the McCartney era and the early years of the Rick Neuheisel era and then spilling over somewhat into uh, Gary Barnett's era. So, yeah, I, I am tremendously blessed and fortunate to have covered CU at a time when they were playing for national championships. And, you know, I can remember um, several of those teams, the 89 team, the 90 team, 
the 94 team, um, the talent was just unreal. You know, they, they had guys that uh, could have played at any school in the big eight, big 12. Um, they were, they were phenomenal athletes and uh, McCartney and his staff did a tremendous job in recruiting and uh, you know, they, and New Heisel kept it going for as long as he was there. But uh, there were players that, you know, you, you uh, hope to see again or players of that caliber in a CU uniform. Uh, and I hope it happens. You know, I hope Carl Durrell can turn the thing around. Were you having to wear both the beat writer and columnist hat for the Rocky Mountain News covering the buffs? Or were you pretty much just strictly a beat guy? Strictly a beat guy. I did write an occasional column. And, uh, you know, I, I think during that era there, and maybe still now, I'm not sure that a lot of people, uh, a lot of readers understood the difference between a beat writer and a columnist. And if I, if I wrote an opinion piece, uh, it was always labeled as such. And, uh, you know, if someone would say, well, you know, why are you taking that opinion? And I said, because it's it's in an opinion piece and it's it's uh, labeled as such. And it's different from a news story that I'm going to write on a, you know, that appears in the paper on a Sunday morning after a CU Missouri game. So, you know, um, but I was primarily the um, the beat writer. So. So, you know, I'd say that 90% or more of what I wrote was allegedly factual and, uh, you know, and, and supposedly straightforward. How many people were covering the buffs on a daily basis when you first started covering CU? Wow. Well, uh, let's see. The Rocky Mountain News, of course, the Denver Post, the Boulder Daily Camera, and the camera would often have two people at a practice, uh, one all the time. The Colorado Springs papers would send someone up, uh, you know, maybe once or twice a week. The outlying papers in Boulder, Longmont, uh, who else? Longmont primarily. Um, and then you would have, when the CU was really good, you would have uh, you know, some national beat writers, national college writers drop in on a weekly basis. So at a, at a typical practice in that, during that time, there would probably be counting TV types and, or I'm sorry, TV type sounds kind of demeaning and I don't mean it to, to be that, but there would be TV reporters radio guys um, who would be there. And, you know, you'd probably have 10 or 11 media people at a practice. I know when I first started covering CU, the media scrums with coaches were not filmed at that point. Correct. And you could, you would phrase things maybe a little bit differently than you do nowadays when all of that is getting streamed out basically right away. Were you able to get a lot more out of those media scrums back in the day? I think I think you got enough. However, um, there were 
daily instances of um, if I if I had an angle that I didn't want to share in the media scrum, then I would try to pull McCartney aside after the scrum or a particular player after the scrum and pursue my line of questioning on a particular subject rather than, you know, spill what I was working on to the other members of the media. So you did get enough. I mean, you got the basics, but if you had something that you really wanted to keep to yourself and thought you had an exclusive story, you didn't share that during the scrum. And that's another aspect that I don't think the average fan realizes is it's a really unique dynamic that you have with other the other reporters that are covering the team, right? You're spending so much time together because you're killing time until practice ends and you get to know, you You know, there's times I spend more time with Brian Howell than my own family during the football <laughs> season. Yet you kind of touched on this a little bit. There's also the competitive aspect of the beat. Just how competitive was it being on the CU beat in, in those early days? Extremely. Um, the, you know, we, we talked about earlier, we talked about Twitter. We talked about, uh, we didn't talk about the internet, but, uh, you know, that changed things dramatically also. But in the, the early days, uh, a CU fan's main sources of information were the Daily Camera, the Rocky Mountain News, the Denver Post, you know, and maybe a couple of other outlets that covered them on a daily basis. So the competition was extreme. And, you know, I, I didn't want, um, if I had a one-on-one interview set up with uh, Darian Hagen, for example, I didn't expect the Boulder Camera or the Denver Post to uh, either of their beat writers to kind of, uh, you know, shuffle their way over and get within earshot of what I was asking Hagen. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you had that competition going on and it was very intense, but you didn't want to make enemies among uh, the Boulder camera beat writers or the post beat writers. And I think, you know, for the most part, we all got along very, very well. And we, we went out to dinner, you know, uh, when we're on the road and, you know, the dinners didn't turn into food fights or, uh, whatever. And, you know, it was all kept very cordial. And uh, I, th- I think mainly we all got along. For the most part, we all got along. And I think we respected each other and respected the work that each of us was doing. And, you know, there there were ground rules that, uh, you know, were unspoken and unwritten, but they were there nonetheless. You talked about some of the talented CU football teams you covered were those your favorite teams to cover were there any teams or moments or games or memories you have that really stand out when you think about your time covering CU yeah I think um, you know I'll, I'll always remember the the Sal Onesi years uh, <clears throat> and uh, I can re- I can remember the the game in uh, at Washington in I believe it was 1989 when uh, after Alnessi's death, and it was the first game that CU had played after Sal's death, and the team uh, huddling and forming a circle, all players um, on one knee 
before the game started and raising their helmets. And, uh, you know, that was a very, very poignant and touching moment, I think. And it just, to me, it, it exemplified how much that team rallied around Onessi and what a cause that was going into that season and the next. Um, and of course, you know, they, they were, they were highly motivated anybody, but this was just really kind of an extra, an extra push for them. And uh, they had the players to do it. So that was, that of course stood out. Um, fifth down at Missouri in 1990 was in, in it just an incredible scene. And I uh, occasionally will go back and pull out a newspaper clip of coverage of that game and thought, boy, you know, what a, what an afternoon that turned out to be. And uh, it was, you know, certainly part of history that year. Uh, There's so many others, um, you know, players that you encountered uh, from start to finish. You know, I remember Mike Machete, the quarterback, was just was one of my favorite players simply because he was a guy who was uh, <clears throat> he was completely into it, totally you know totally intense uh, and a good player to boot. But uh, <clears throat> if I started naming other players, I'd be leaving out some, and you know <clears throat> I'll name a couple anyway. Matt Russell, <clears throat> excuse me. Matt Russell was, uh, you know, to this to this day, a good friend. I haven't talked to him in a while, but uh, he was he was one of my favorites. And uh, you know, there were there were certainly so many others: uh, Alfred Williams and Canavis McGee, and uh, guys from that era. And then the later eras, you know, there were there were other guys who uh, played for for New Heisel and Barnett and. Uh, and Dan Hawkins and John Embry and um, um, and Mike McIntosh McIntyre. I'm sorry, but uh, you know you you really made a lot of relationships, and some of them you know are are now Facebook friends or whatever. And uh, I try to stay in touch with some of them. I try to remember birthdays on Facebook. You know, wish guys. Uh, happy birthdays and so forth. And they respond. And so it's uh, a lot of good memories, a lot of good people and the administrators uh, that I worked for were, were by and large, you know, really straight shooters and honest people. You just talked about all those relationships you made over the years. And it's more fun to cover teams that are winning and competing for championships was it always easy for you to kind of separate your emotion in this gig, or is that something that you kind of struggle with just having those relationships and wanting the team to do well, but also having to stay unbiased with your job? I don't, I don't think I struggled with that at all. I I think that, uh, you know, certainly I, I liked the people and the players that I covered. I enjoyed seeing them do well. And, um, you know, I, I, it would, might have been a little easier to write a game story after a CU victory than a loss. But at the same time, um, <clears throat> I think that uh, covering a loss 
was, you know, not an issue for me uh, <clears throat> and remaining, trying to remain detached anyway. And knowing that, you know, I, I was pretty much uh, my, my charge was pretty much telling what happened without interjecting emotion into it. Or, uh, I mean, I tried to, I tried to interject, you know, some, uh, some liveliness or, you know, some entertainment into what I was doing, whether it was a win or a loss. But uh, <clears throat> as far as, as far as, you know, having that color what I was doing, having those relationships color what I was doing, I didn't find that to be a problem. Which coaches would you rank as the most media friendly from your time covering the buffs? And then conversely, which were kind of the harder coaches to deal with? Uh, are we going to talk about football or you want to go? Well, we can go any, any sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, McCart- McCartney was, was good. I wouldn't say he was the best. Uh, McCartney was, was straightforward. He, I think, let me, let me probably say this before I go any further. And that's, uh, I think all coaches that you deal with are maybe somewhat questionable about, uh, at least they were in that era about newspaper guys or media people in general. And, uh, you know, it's, it, sometimes boil down to an us and them situation. Um, <clears throat> and most coach, most coaches in every sport don't want them, their players or their programs um, displayed in a, what they deem a negative light. And sometimes a negative light in their eyes is um you know, anything that's not favorable to what they're trying to do or their their programs in general or whatever. And it just, you know, from my experience, it can't be that way. You know, there's the good, the bad, sometimes the ugly. And uh, if you're if you're working a beat for a newspaper or any media outlet, you have to take into account all those three things, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think your reporting should reflect that. It doesn't have to reflect it in a way that, uh, you know, is going to make enemies, but it's got to be straightforward. It's got to be factual. And, but back to the coaches, um, I think maybe the most media friendly was Rick Neuheisel. Uh, But at the same time, you know, you had to understand that Neuheisel would push things right to the edge with you and with the facts, and if he dropped over the edge on occasion, then uh, you know you'd better be astute enough to recognize it. And uh, I think I think Dan Hawkins was certainly media friendly. I think uh, I think McIntyre was uh, you know i think by and large all of the all of those guys gary barnett uh john Embry in football you know they i think they all uh certainly were were genuinely good people uh i think that they they certainly didn't want 
things to appear in print or on the airwaves that they deemed objectionable. But, you know, like I said earlier, uh, every situation is not going to be perfect and you'd better be willing to report when it's, when it's not perfect. Uh, <clears throat> basketball is a totally different, different environment for whatever reason. I don't know, you know, maybe it's those coaches that are hearing dribbling so much that it, uh, you know, gets into their heads and they can't think straight, <laughs> but, uh, the, the, some of the most cantankerous people that, uh, I dealt with at CU were hoops coaches. And, uh, you know, at the same time, Ted Boyle was at the top of the list as far as, uh, any coach I've dealt with in any sport, just a, just a very, very, very good person. And, uh, and for me, at least, very easy to deal with. Um, now, Jeff Bazdelic, we had our run-ins. Tom Miller, we had our run-ins. Uh, Ricardo Patton, I found Ricardo to be, to be a good guy. And maybe it's because, you know, we both had Tennessee, Memphis roots. I don't know. You know, maybe we could understand each other better. But uh, um it was just, it was, you know, sometimes a different scene covering basketball. Uh, and in terms of, you know, coaches and other sports, I found Mark Wedmore to be one of the most refreshing guys and still find him to be one of the most refreshing guys and his staff members also, you know, they, they are just, they're just quality folks. And, and Wedmore, Wedmore is very, very um, humorous guy. Um, and a and a terrific coach, you know what he's done at CU. I think is I'd give him a raise if I were Rick George. So, but you know, by and large, the uh, I didn't deal with many coaches that were there were one or two, but I didn't deal with many coaches at CU during all my time there, both as a newspaper guy and uh, an athletic department employee that I just dreaded dealing with. You know, it, it, it was a pleasant situation for the most part. I think whenever Tad Boyle decides that he wants to retire from coaching, he could really go across the country and teach coaches how to deal with the media because oh my gosh. It, and you don't even really have to, as a media member covering that program, ask tough questions because Tad Boyle meets all that stuff head on himself. He does. And, and he does it in a way that I don't think really throws the players under the bus on a consistent basis unless they deserve it. But at the same time, I think it's stuff that he's just told those players in the locker room before meeting with us. Right. Right. And, and I mean, Ted, Ted certainly is not a cream puff. You know, Ted's a uh, he's a guy who gets along well with most everybody he deals with. But there's an edge there that. uh you know, that you can see clearly when things aren't going right on the court or in a practice or whatever. And he gets his point across, but he does it in a way that doesn't alienate his players. And I think that is a that's the true march, the true mark of a guy who can coach and communicate. And I'll I'll give you one example about Ted when I was working for the university. Um Occasionally, I would ride on a bus with them, you know, ride to Fort Collins for a game against CSU, or uh, I think one occasion, I rode to Wyoming 
uh, on the team bus, which is something that you would never do as a newspaper guy, but as an athletic department employee, you know, yeah, that was, it was a privilege and I took advantage of it. But we went to CSU one night, left that afternoon, <clears throat> and um, we, the, the weather forecast was, you know, was, was pretty grim. And so uh, the game was played. I forget who won. I think CU won by a couple or, but uh, anyway, we came back out to get on the bus to come back to Boulder. And it was, you know, one of these sideways snowstorms. It was really nasty. And so we crept along I-25, you know, getting back to Boulder. And uh, as we were pulling up into the parking lot at the Coors Event Center, Tad said, uh, well, you're going to drive back to Netherlands tonight? And I said, yeah, I'm planning on it. And he said, no. He said, no, you're not. You're going to come stay with me. So I followed Tad back to his home and spent the night there. And we, you know, sat up after, uh, you know, I got settled and whatever, watched a late game on TV and had a beverage or two. And, uh, you know, it was just something that I'll never forget. I mean, you know, here's a guy who was going above and beyond just to assure someone that they weren't going to have to drive up Boulder Canyon in a snowstorm. And uh, I mean, that's that's hospitality taken to the next level. And, uh, you know, it's something I really appreciated and, and will always remember. That's a great story. You were a, a voter on a lot of college football awards. You voted uh, for the Heisman Trophy, the Butkus right. Award. You were an AP Top 25 <clears throat> voter. Do, do you have any good stories from that? You know, fan bases get angry <laughs> with you over uh, – your, your rankings, uh, what, what was it like voting for those awards and, and being an AP voter? Well, one story I'll always remember, and this was uh, pre-internet days and pre-email and, you know, in, in where we are now. But um, there, was a, there was a particular poll, and I forget what year it was, but I was an AP top 25 guy in voting every um, – every Sunday afternoon. And for some reason, West Virginia was having a good season. And um, I had either omitted, erroneously omitted West Virginia from my top 25 or had ranked them lower than the West Virginia fan base felt that West Virginia deserved. And it took, <clears throat> it took about, uh, took about three days before my mailbox at the Rocky Mountain News was filled with postcards from West Virginia fans saying, what on earth is this guy doing as a voter? You know, doesn't he watch games? Does he, know what's going on in college football. And, um, you know, they, if, if, uh, if this had been in the email era, my mailbox would have been full of nasty emails. 
and I would have gotten, I'm sure, you know, messages from whatever source. But uh, if the fan base from a particular school didn't like what you were doing as an AP voter, you could count on getting postcard after postcard or, you know, beyond that, hate mail. So um, I don't remember any irate um, reaction from voting on the Butkus or the Heisman or whatever, because those things are generally, they're kept private. You know, you're, I think the Heisman votes now are made public, but uh, the other awards, the Doak Walker, um, the Lombardi Awards, those, you know, all those other um, awards that I did vote on, I think they went pretty smooth. And there was, you know, normally a pretty, pretty clear cut winner, in my mind anyway, as to who you would vote on. Another misconception I think some folks have is that mm -hmm. if you're covering a college football team, you're watching a ton of college football. And on game day, it's, it's a lengthy commitment. You're getting to the press box early. You've got the game and then you've mm -hmm. got post game and then you're writing. And so sometimes it's difficult to watch a lot of college football. How challenging was that to stay up on everything to be an AP voter? It was challenging. Um, when in those days, when I, um, when I left the press box, I would try to see as many highlights and get as many scores as I could. And <clears throat> of course, you know, I would run down, I would have my AP top 25 uh, ballot from the previous week and would try to check on how each of those top 25 teams did. And, uh, you know, there was, there were certainly, there was a great margin for error there because sometimes, you know, you just, you couldn't see everything, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a real challenge. And in the, I think in the later years of the AP poll or when I was doing it, uh, AP New York, when you sent your ballot in, if you didn't have a top 25 team in there from the previous week and that team had won or whatever, the AP sports editor would call you and say, you know, what's your reasoning here? Why is this team omitted or whatever? And I, <clears throat> I wish that had been the case that year that I, uh, that I did West Virginia wrong. But, uh, you know, I think that was... That was an omission that, uh, you know, certainly was not meant. And maybe the West Virginia fans eventually forgave me. I don't know. I don't know. Fan bases can hold a grudge for a really oh, long time. Eternal. <laughs> when working for the Rocky Mountain News, did you see a shift in sports journalism and the way that college football was covered? Do you remember a time when, it kind of looked like print could be in trouble, at least in the sense of the way things had been? Uh, <clears throat> not so much. Um, I think, I think the, the shift that I noticed maybe was in the latter years in the, you know, from maybe 2000 on when, um, when there was so much coverage of college football. And I think the approach that beat writers and uh, columnists had in, in doing their work might have changed a little bit in that 
the scores and play by plays, uh, you know, and, and the things that were really kind of the meat and potatoes of, of writing the game story on a Saturday afternoon that would appear on Sunday morning. I think that kind of changed because everybody or most everybody who was interested in a team knew what went on during a game. They had either followed it on TV or were picking up, uh, you know, various game accounts during the game. And so I think writing a game story or a column was altered in a bit because you know, you you weren't telling the story for the first time. The the coverage had already been there on game day via television or radio. And so, you know, you were trying to find an angle or uh, get player reaction or do some things that maybe the TV audience on that Saturday weren't privy to. And I think that might have been the biggest change, I think, as far as uh, – you know, the nuts and bolts of newspaper work, uh, I don't think that changed until the paper closed. Another thing that changed around 2000 was recruiting coverage and just how much all of that was covered on the internet. Did you dip your toes much into recruiting coverage? I dipped my toes, ankles, knees, up to my waist in recruiting coverage. in the latter years when recruiting came became such a big thing. Uh, recruiting coverage was really, truthfully, never something that I really looked forward to or enjoyed because it meant so many, during a recruiting period, it meant so many late night phone calls. And I mean, you know, you're, you're certainly well aware of all of this, you know, and your recruiting coverage is just it's been tremendous. Um, but I, I remember, for example, at a spring football game, uh, Natalie Meisler, the late Natalie Meisler, who was covering uh, CU for the Post, she and I would at the same time go down to uh, the field after the ball game, after a spring game or a scrimmage prior to the spring game or whatever and see some guys on the sidelines who were obviously not CU players. They were visiting recruits. And we would try to gather as many phone numbers and names as we could. And the university was not real keen on, you know, us having this information, but uh, there was little they could do to prevent it unless they barred us from, uh, from covering the spring game or a scrimmage. And they didn't want to do that because, you know, they would not get the publicity they wanted, but we were scrounging for every scrap of uh, information that we could get. And uh, there were very few times that the sports information department or actually the sports information wouldn't do it. I think it came from assistant coaches who were out recruiting who would tip you off on uh, who they had visited and so forth and say, well, you know, uh, the rest is up to you. Give this person a call if you want to. And of course, you know, the call went out because you were competitive and you wanted to beat the other guy, beat the other newspaper on a, on a really good recruiting tidbit. 
but recruiting has changed so much. I mean, if if uh, if you had been around and had been, you know, doing what you do in the early stages of uh, recruiting when I was on the CU beat, I would have given you a bonus. I would have uh, I would have given you part of my paycheck, which was meager. But, uh, you know, it would have saved so much legwork. And uh, you obviously have now recruiting channels and uh, sources. And, I mean, it's, it's changed in so much, but it's a good thing. You know, you guys do a tremendous job, and I applaud you for it. Well, I appreciate that. I'm curious, back when you got close to signing day, back in the late eighties, early nineties, did you pretty much know who they were going to sign or was there quite a bit of mystery on signing day still? There, there was some mystery. There certainly was, you know, you, you could not, unless you got uh, really great information from a recruiting coordinator and, and he was going to give you a, you know, a signing list, which I can't remember ever happening, but, uh, there was a lot of mystery involved. The mystery was taken out of it. If you had a pretty good idea of, uh, you know, players or recruits you had talked to over the previous month or so and had their phone numbers and the night before recruiting signing date, you made 14, 15 or more phone calls and ask, well, are you still solid with CU? Do you, are you going to sign tomorrow? And so the guy would say yes, and you would check the name off and go to the next one. And um, that was the only way really to pin down who they were going to sign that day. And, of course, you couldn't get every name. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but transitioning from writing for the Rocky Mountain News to being a CU employee and being a contributing editor to cubuffs.com. Share a little bit more about kind of your later stages covering CU and what it was like. You talked about uh, getting an invite to spend the night at Tad Boyle's house. And you spent all this time trying to get information and now all of it's around you. Was that difficult to kind of change your perspective and the way that you covered the team? Yeah, the the difficult part was having access to information that you would have killed for as a newspaper beat writer, you had this information and you couldn't do anything with it really because the school didn't want that to be printed. Uh, So you just kind of bit your tongue and stuffed your hands in your pockets and said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll wait to write the press release or you know, whatever, wait until Dave Platty or Curtis Snyder or Troy Andre writes the press release, and then it'll be in public. But, you know, deep down, you were telling yourself, I want to break that story. I want to, you know, I want to get it out there. And, uh, but that's, that's the way that was the job description. Did you go into to that gig kind of having a time when you knew you wanted to retire or how did your retirement uh, take shape? <clears throat> well, um, I went into it first in uh, in 2009 when I took the job in July of that year. 
I really didn't know. I didn't have a retirement date in mind. I knew that, uh, you know, it was coming around because I was certainly coming to the age of retirement eventually. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll do this as long as I'm enjoying it. And, uh, you know, when I start thinking about retirement, then I'll, I'll really think about retirement. So I worked, I wound up working for CU for eight years. And the last two of those were uh, somewhat part-time. And I wanted to, I wanted to do it, uh, you know, frankly, long enough to get vested in the, you know, in the CU system, which would help out in retirement. And so that, that kind of became a goal. And then, you know, when I reached the magic age of 70, whatever magic that involves, um, (laughs) I thought, you know, now's a good time to log off and, uh, go to the stands instead of the press box. And I, I mentioned to Dave Platty on several occasions, um, he's been really great. He's, he's been good in inviting me and Patty back into the press box for, which I ran into you last fall, I think. In the press yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Dave has been great as far as calling me and saying, Hey, would you like to come sit in the press box this week? And, um, you know, yeah. You know, why not? So, but I've told Dave on several occasions that it's really been good to walk into the stadium with uh, with Patty on my arm instead of walking into the press box carrying a laptop. So that's that's been a real benefit. And and we've enjoyed, I've really enjoyed going on a, you know, an October, early October Saturday afternoon and sitting in the stands and watching the buffs and knowing that, uh, well, hey, you know, if uh, if things aren't going well, I can leave in, at the start of the fourth quarter and don't have to write about this. Or, you know, we can stay until the end and enjoy the weather, enjoy the game. And um, so it's been good. I've, I've really had a career that's been blessed and, and uh, I appreciate it. I never want to get to the point where I don't appreciate it and don't feel gratitude for what I've been able to do. You recently took a vacation to Moab, but what does retirement life look like for you? <laughs> retirement looks like being able to uh, leave on a Monday morning and go to Moab and spend four days and hike and then uh, come back and, you know, plan the next trip. It's been it's been a great uh, retirement's been good. You know, I, I've had people when I when I started thinking about retirement, I had so many people say, well, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to spend your time? Well, that hasn't been an issue. I've uh, I don't think there have been more than, you know, three or four days where I've thought, boy, you know, I really miss uh, meeting a deadline. I really miss having to make those 11 p.m. phone calls. You know, and uh, that's not to say that I enjoy, didn't enjoy what I was doing for all those years because I did. But, uh, you know, I, I loved my job and now I love not having to do it. You mentioned having to cover the good, the bad and the ugly. And you certainly covered all of that <laughs> during your time on the CU beat. As you kind of reflect on the last 16 or so years, a lot of that time covering the team and still, you know, 
paying attention to the team from a distance here in recent years. What, what do you kind of blame to the downturn of, of CU football? How much of that do you put on the recruiting scandal in the early 2000s that kind of led to the downturn of the program? I think that that played a big part in what you're seeing now. I think that that was a that was the beginning of an era of instability in CU football. And I think with, uh, with Gary's firing and with, uh, you know, the things that followed, uh, I just don't think the, the program has recovered. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's really tough to break out of that cycle. Um, I think, you know, you hear people say all the time that it's, uh, it's certainly a hard climb to get to the top, but the way down can go awfully fast. And I think that's what, what we've seen here. Um, I certainly hope that, that they find some stability with, with Carl Durrell. And I hope that, uh, you know, he can, he can recruit players and he can keep players. You know, the transfer portal has really changed so much for college coaches wanting to recruit and develop good players, you know, maybe players that other programs have bypassed, but, you know, they get in the right situations and those players really flourish. And now, you know, if you find an under the radar player who gets to your place and really flourishes, there's no guarantee that he's not going to say, well, you know, the pasture is greener somewhere else and uh, portal here I come. I'm sure you've gotten asked a lot over the years from young adults, young people looking to get into sports journalism, reaching out, asking for advice. Was there kind of a standard answer you typically gave to those people that had an interest in getting into sports journalism and and, a certain advice that you kind of pass along to them? Yeah. And that is uh, read as much as you can, you know, Turn off uh, your cell phone, turn off the laptop, or if you're going to spend time on the laptop or cell phone, then find something to read that's going to benefit you and help you reach your goals. Um, Read good writers, read people who can actually put their words together and make sense and um, have a basis to a story. And then, you know, Along with the reading, you have to write. You have to, you have to stay uh, in tune with your craft. And uh, if if you're not willing to to write, to start over what you're writing, to do three or four attempts at you know at anything you do, you know your your first attempt at a game story or a feature story is probably not going to be as good as the third or fourth attempt. And you know I. Granted, there are sometimes on uh, particularly, you know, back in when I was writing on deadline a lot that you didn't have the opportunity to do a story two or three times. You had to do it once and make deadline and, you know, and just uh, and believe that you got it right the first time. But, uh, you know, practice does make perfect or close to perfect. I don't think anything, you know, we're we're not going to be perfect in most everything we do. But uh, you can be, you can a- approach it, and you can try to get there with everything that you do. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I think the the 
basic advice for uh, a sports writer or a newspaper writer or anybody who wants to get into journalism is be factual, um, be, be as quick, be as fast as you can if you're going to make deadlines, read, write, and uh, practice. And, you know, don't give up on it because it doesn't, it doesn't come easy. Great stuff, BG. I'm not going to take up any more of your time, but uh, really enjoyed catching up with you. And thank you for for being a good influence on me when I first started covering CU. I'm sure you impact a lot of people, you know, over the course of your career. Well, you're too kind. I hope that, uh, you know, any influence I had was in the right direction. And um, it it was really a pleasure doing this. You know, you you uh, made me think of some things that I probably would not have thought of uh, unless I really sat down and you know tried to uh, jar my my uh, memory. So it was. I really enjoyed it, and I, and I appreciate your work. I appreciate you offering this invitation. Of course, BG. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for tuning in.